Ezekiel chapter 28. This is so critical. And what we're going to talk about this morning out of Ezekiel 28 is something the Lord does to reveal to us something we absolutely need to be aware of. I think, I think the church is probably not as aware of this as we need to be. So beginning in verse 1 of Ezekiel 28, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord, the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God. Therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of your slayer, though you are a man and not God, in the hands of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamonds the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, You are internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will prepare our hearts for your word and bring your teaching into us. And may we be fully aware of things going on that we cannot see. May we fully understand the battle that takes place that is not before our eyes, but is before our spirits. May we be equipped, Lord, to engage in that battle with all of the implements you've given us, And may we know, Lord Jesus, this morning, may we know our enemy. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sun Tzu was a brilliant Chinese general and military tactician. Back in the 5th century B.C., he wrote the book, The Art of War. It's still read and studied in military academies today. And in this book, The Art of War, Sun Tzu wrote, Know thy enemy and know thyself. Find not in fear for 100 battles. Know thyself, but not thy enemy. Find level of loss and victory. Know thy enemy and not thyself. Wallow in defeat every time. Ezekiel knew who he was. Ezekiel was a prophet of God. He was a called man. Last Sunday we talked about that. Knowing your calling. Your calling is what allows to get allows you to get up after a night of mourning, in the morning, and go about the business of God, doing what you have been commanded. Knowing who you are in Christ is absolutely critical for continuing in this life, regardless of all circumstances. And, and we covered that. Paul said in Philippians 3.13, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, i got to stop right there. How are you doing with that? Are you forgetting what lies behind? The pain, the circumstances, and the issues of the past yesterday, the day before that, last year, ten years ago. Are you forgetting that? Because the call of the follower of Jesus is forget it, man. Let it go, woman. Move forward in Christ. One thing I do. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is not a call to return to the past, but a call to go forward. And you can do that if you know who you are in Christ. If you know, first of all, that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And so that's all about knowing yourself. But this morning, I want to talk about knowing our enemy because I believe Sun Tzu was right. I know he was a military strategist, but I think he was on to a great spiritual truth as well. Know thyself, but not thy enemy, and find level of loss and victory. That is, if you know your strengths, you know who you are in Christ, you're moving forward in Jesus, your, your sight is set on Him, but you're wondering, why do I still have failures? Why do I still struggle? Why do I still have problems? Perhaps it's because you know yourself in Christ, but you don't know your enemy. You are unaware of what he's about, of his tactics, of his traits, of his motivations. Too many people in the church don't know the enemy. Don't talk about the enemy. Many don't even believe in the enemy, and so their losses and their gains go back and forth. You surge forward because you're in Christ, but then you have some loss because you don't see what was coming because you don't know the enemy. But know thy enemy and know thyself. Find not in fear for a hundred battles. So this morning we're going to spend some time getting to know our enemy. Focusing on him and thinking about him. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not going to be caught off guard if we know our enemy. Not going to be unaware of how he functions, how he works, and how he undermines everything that we attempt to do for the Lord. The fact that he is the adversary. And by the way, such ignorance of the enemy is not just momentarily dumb, it's eternally dangerous. A lot of people just don't want to deal with that. 
some, I've shared before, view Satan as kind of the dark side of the force. You know? The Star Wars Christianity. Well, I know there's evil out there, a vague kind of sense of that. And maybe, maybe the Bible just names it so that we can have a sense of something out there, but not a true person, not an actual uh, character or personality. Well, Jesus certainly thought differently. Jesus actually interacted with this adversary, spoke with him, dealt with him face to face, talked about him numerous times, even saying in John 8.44, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, to increase our alertness and our awareness of him, God does something fascinating in the Bible, in several passages of Scripture. He literally draws back the veil between the physical world and the spiritual. Between the natural realm and the supernatural, He draws the veil back so that we can peer into the supernatural realm and see what's going on. He does it very clearly in Isaiah 14, which we studied a few months ago. He does it again in Daniel chapter 10, which is just before us by a month or two. He does it in Revelation chapter 12, and He does it right here in Ezekiel 28, drawing back the veil between the physical and the spiritual. He first deals with the natural man, and then deals with the spiritual ramifications of what's really going on. Why does God do this? Paul explains it best. You've heard the passage. Let me read it again. Ephesians 6.11 Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. I thought I could stand firm if I just know that I'm in Christ. That's part of the deal. But it's not just knowing yourself, it is knowing your enemy. And to stand firm. I love that Paul points this out. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against the government. It is not against the current president, whoever he might be. It's not against the ruling party, whichever party that might be. It's not against the city council. It's not against your next door neighbor. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. But against spiritual forces. And if we deny that, then we truly are ignoring the enemy and the truth, not of Pastor Rick's belief, but of the Scriptures themselves. This teaching we're going to take in two parts. We will look at, first of all, the tactics of the enemy, and then we'll go a little bit further into that, looking at the traits of the enemy. So first, the tactics of the enemy, chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man, and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. That doesn't mean he's a man after God's own heart. It means he lifts himself up as though he were God himself. 
He says in his own heart, I am a God. I am lifted up. But note this, the word there for the leader of Tyre, this is important, the leader. That word, some of your Bibles may say prince, and that's a good translation. It's Nagid. Nagid in the Hebrew means leader or prince or literally the man at the top. The man at the top, the head guy, the boss. And looking at this man, we see four enemy tactics at play. This is just a guy, this leader of Tyre, a very specific man. I'll name him in just a moment. But we see the effect of the enemy at play in this man's life. Tactic number one, influence. Influence. Satan has a limitation. Well, he has many limitations, but he has one that he uses to his advantage. And that is influence. The limitation is that Satan can only influence and use mankind. And so he uses and influences mankind. But he's limited to that. With that comes a weakness. He needs the help of human agency to get the job done. He has to work through a person, through a man, through a woman, through an organization. Satan influences human agency. By the way, God doesn't. He doesn't have to. In fact, after spending years in history revealing our frailty and our fallibility, God became human Himself. He didn't use a human. He became human The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus wasn't God's human pawn. Jesus, in the flesh, was God among us. Emmanuel. Fully man, fully God. So God says, I'm not just going to try and influence and by trickery and deceit human beings. I'm just going to become human and show them what it's all about. Well, didn't God influence people like Paul or or way before him, Moses? Yeah, but they always had a choice. And he was always totally up front, always in the light, always completely truthful with them about what was coming, what they were going to do, and what he was calling them to. So the Lord may influence people, but it's always openly and truthfully, whereas Satan influences subversively. And he has to. He has no other alternative. But Jesus, remember, Jesus was not God's human pawn. Jesus was God with us. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. And so that's how that works. But Satan needs a puppet. Satan needs a human through whom he can work. And in this case, it's the prince of Tyre. His name was Ethbaal II. He reigned from 591 to 572 B.C. And you might note this, Satan loves to influence people of influence. In fact, that's a key for Satan. If he can find an influential person and begin to influence them and work through them, he has a greater impact. This is a tactic of the enemy. He doesn't waste much time on those he views as non-influentials. Doesn't mean he won't go after you. But he just won't waste a lot of time there. But the more influence you have, the greater the asset to the enemy. And if he thinks you're a highly influential asset, he's going to try to exalt you even more highly. Satan has no problem exalting man. Because it works to his device. 
It goes to His plans. Isn't it interesting that by contrast, Jesus said in Matthew or Mark chapter 10, verse 42, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But this is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. See, God's plan is not to exalt man, but to make sure man knows who he is in relationship to God. God's plan is to bring us into a place of humbleness, of serving, of bowing down to Him. Even great things done for the Lord Jesus must be done in humility and servitude. God's not looking for great people. He's looking for servants. He's not looking for kings and those in authorities and, and, and people of great influence. God is just looking for those who say, I'll follow Yes, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll share Dave Ramsey's seminar. I'll, I'll do that. God is looking for someone who says, I'll do what you want me to do, Lord. And some of the greatest work of God, in fact, I would say all of the great work of God done throughout history has always been done through simple, non-influential people. Oh, they may have become influential later on. They have, may have impacted dozens or hundreds or, or, or thousands because of the work of the Lord. But they didn't start out that way. Remember when God finally came to Moses, he was a shepherd in Midian. God would wait, not for Moses' influential days as a prince of Egypt, but his non-influential days as a prince of sheep. <laughs> and that's when God said, now, now you're ready, now I can use you. Paul says, Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in human likeness. That whole passage which describes the humanity of Christ in such powerful terms begins with the phrase, have this attitude in yourselves. You see, as we understand that there is this tactic of the enemy to use influential people, to influence the influential, God says, I'm not looking for that. And many times as Christians we say, God, how can you use me? You know, I mean, I live on North Whidbey Island. I just have a small business or, or I just, you know, uh, I'm not known. I, I don't do anything impressive. And God says, right, now you're ready to be used by me. Satan, on the other hand, would look at you and go, well, you know, if you don't have much to offer, I'll just make sure that you're messed up enough to keep you out of my way. <laughs> The Prince of Tyre. The Prince of Tyre was an influential man. He was a great king at the time, a great leader over Tyre. It says in verse 2 that he sat in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. The capital of Tyre was actually a rocky island just off the coast, about a half mile off the coast in the Mediterranean Sea from the rest of Tyre. And that was the capital, and it was called the Holy Island. Because Tyrians or Tyrians all believed that their king was a god. And their king himself believed, F. Baal. F. Baal. Baal being that god, the pagan god. I am, you know, the representative of Baal here. And he sat on his throne, as the Bible says, in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. That island, that capital of Tyre, was the heart of the seas, called again the Holy Island, because they all believed the prince was divine. 
The Lord makes it absolutely clear. Though Satan believes this is a man of influence, God says two times, yet you are a man and not a God. You're just a man. You are not what you think you are. Second tactic. Not only influence, but affluence. Affluence. Verse 3. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you've acquired riches for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. This is dripping with sarcasm. God is not affirming this. He's saying, this is how you think. You really think that you're the one that's done all of this. You really think this highly of yourself, of your own affluence. Do I even need to mention here that riches never satisfy the way we think they will? That the pursuit of wealth is one of the most dangerous things a Christian or a non-Christian can engage in. Psalm 62 verse 10, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Now I have probably gotten in more trouble calling out greed than anything I have preached since we started the bridge 10 years ago. I know every time money comes up, and especially the issue of greed comes up, if I talk about it, typically a dart or two is fired my way. Which just makes me want to talk about it more. (laughs) No, you know what? I would be negligent as a Bible teacher if I didn't address greed and wealth and money. And specifically address it the way Scripture does. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And you might say, Rick, I thought we were talking about the enemy here. And that's the thing. We are. We are. Affluence is one of the key tactics of the enemy. What sometimes a Christian will see as blessing is truly the work of the enemy trying to subvert what God is doing in your life. When you're saying that my blessing is not from the Lord, I'm saying be careful if financially you begin to be in a rich place. Be careful if you happen to be not so well off, but you're thinking about money all the time. Because it is a tool of the enemy. It is a tactic of Satan to work through this issue of affluence. The desire for wealth is among the greatest and most deceptive and divisive weapons that the enemy will use. Influence, affluence, number three, intelligence. Intelligence. It's interesting that Daniel is mentioned here. There in verse three, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. And at this time, Ezekiel, we've talked about contemporary of Daniel. Daniel is in the courts of Babylon, while Ezekiel is among the exiles. Daniel's fame is already spread far and wide, that the prince of Tyre on the Mediterranean sea coast would believe himself to be wiser than Daniel over in Babylon tells us the fame of Daniel has spread. People know this guy's name. Daniel at this time has probably been in the court of Babylon about 25 years. But Daniel, Daniel is an example of true humility. 
Daniel is a remarkable man. We'll talk about him very soon in just a few weeks here. Daniel always recognized where the power and the wisdom and the insight came from. He always knew it wasn't him. And he expressed that very clearly. Daniel 2.20 Let the name of God be praised, be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. He's just proclaimed a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. No one else could do that. Daniel comes up and tells Nebuchadnezzar the answer, not only the answer to his dream, but what the dream was. How could he possibly? This must be a wise man. No, no, it's not me, Daniel says. It's God. He's the wisdom. I, I just heard it from him. Daniel's fame. Daniel's intelligence. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. But this man says, I am wise. I am intelligent. It's by the magnificence of my trade and my dealings and my smarts that I have made Tyre what it is today. Intelligence. Satan loves intelligence. Loves to use intelligence. Loves to educate people in those marvelous seats of American learning these days. You know, let's get into the colleges and let's teach them. And the wiser they... You you realize, it's interesting, when I meet someone who has three, four, five doctorates. Anybody here have five doctorates? Okay, I knew knew Brian. (laughs) I wish you could see what I just saw. The look on Brian's face. Of... I'll tell you what, I'm not opposed to learning. I mean, I just dropped my daughter off at college. I have no problem with education. But of much learning, there is much weariness, Solomon wrote. And it's not just because students get tired of books. It's because learning wears out your head. It's because... And you're like, okay. (laughs) It's a dangerous thing. Because the more we start to rely on our own intelligence, what we have learned, what I have now come to understand. I'm telling you, after 10 years of Bible teaching and Bible study, I am not a smarter guy than I was 10 years ago. I have much more understanding, but it's His understanding. It's just God's Word. And it's funny, you don't... I wish you could know this, but when I'm teaching and on Wednesday night, something comes out of my mouth that is wise and intelligent. It's always surprising to me. <laughs> no, it is. And I will have people come up and go, oh, that was just so so impactful, so moving. I'm like... <laughs> it's His wisdom. It's His intelligence. It's not ours. But Satan goes, oh, no, 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 you're a smart guy. You're a wise gal. People come to you because they want to hear what you have to say. Because of your vast learning. There is so much irony. It just drips with irony here. Satan takes a different tack than the Lord. The Lord blesses Daniel with wisdom and makes Daniel completely aware of where that wisdom's coming from. Satan says to the prince of Tyre, no, this is your smarts. This wisdom is your own. Satan elevates the self. Satan, the tactic of intelligence is he gets you to start thinking you actually are pretty smart. And when you start to believe that, like you've got it in you, like you've got all the smarts needed, you really don't need the Lord's. I don't need Bible study so much anymore. I've gone through a lot, you know. So I'm, hey, I've been teaching the Bible for 10 years. 
So I can take a break for a while because I got it all here. No, I don't. I really don't. People say, hey, you know, Rick, in that Bible study back in 2 Chronicles 31 where you said this, I was just wondering what you meant, and I'm like, I have no idea. I, let me go look. Can I go back to my old... I don't know. Satan uses intelligence until he no longer needs you. He fills up yourself, puffs you up until he's done with you. James says in James 3.14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. James calls it. Wisdom from the earth, intelligence from man, is demonic. He says where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, and gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. You see, true godly wisdom doesn't have to defend itself. Because the person who is wise with godly wisdom knows where that wisdom comes from, and it's not them. So the third tactic is intelligence. The fourth tactic is arrogance. Verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God. Therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit. You will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you say, still say, I am a God? In the presence of your slayer? Though you are a man and not a God, in the hands of those who wound you, you will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and Tyre today is no mighty city. As a matter of fact, the rocky island, the capital of Tyre, no longer exists. And the nation, well, it's Lebanon today, is completely overrun by Hezbollah, is not a powerful, is not a strong, is not a desirable nation. Not like it was. And so what God prophesied came true. But the tactic of the enemy here that we see in this leader of Tyre, in this prince of Tyre, is arrogance. Twice, he says, you've made your heart like the heart of God. Meaning, you actually think you're divine. You really have come to believe in your own spirit somehow that you are some big deal. And we hear it today... In New Age theology, you know, I know it's interesting. In the 80s, it was the church, the buzz was New Age. Be careful of the New Age. And, and now here we are in 2013 and no one even talks about it anymore. It's still rolling. It's just called culture today. It's just completely accepted. It is not New Age theology. It is age-old stupidity. And we've heard this lie. It's been around since Satan first used it on Eve. I'm going to support this again in a few minutes. But gang, understand, this is an age-old tactic of the enemy to puff up to the idea of godliness. The very first attack of Satan on earth, Genesis 3.5, he says to Eve, God knows that in that day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He didn't say you will be God. He said you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. And so Eve, the woman drawn to the spiritual, says, Oh, I'd like to be like God. Godliness, that sounds good. And so she ate and she was deceived. The old lie. You can be God or you can be a God. 
is the height of arrogance. That same lie worked out in Nebuchadnezzar's life. When Nebuchadnezzar said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built for the glory of my majesty? And then he went insane. That story is coming up in a few weeks. It's Shirley MacLaine. (laughs) Standing on the seashore as the waves lapped at her feet, shouting out, I am God! And she believed it. It's uh, Kanye West. Rapping, I know he the most high, but I am a close high. I am a God. It's Satan's oldest ploy. Self-importance, arrogance, pride. And I, I read that. We go all the way back to Genesis. We see it there. We see it all the way through Scripture. We see it all the way through history. We see it even playing out today among world leaders. We see this kind of arrogance, this, this I am a God mentality. And I think... Doesn't say, I mean, how come he keeps using this same thing? He keeps playing the same hand over and over and over again. Is he dumb? No, we are. (laughs) We have not yet figured out this is his greatest tactic the arrogance, the pride of man. If he can tap into that, he's gotcha. And he uses it time and time again. Oh, oh, you're a God. You're a God. Why does he keep doing it? I'll tell you why. Because he is so full of his own pride, his own all-consuming desire for divinity, he can't help himself. And when we talk about things like this, you don't think I know that he's listening. Or he's got a minion somewhere who's paying attention who's going to report back to him. They're on to us! What do we do? No big deal. They're not smart enough to, to realize in a week that I'm still using the same plan. This is how he works. He draws on the arrogance of man. And this is where we go from the tactics to the actual traits, from the prince to the king of Tyre. Verse 11, Again the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. The word king is melech. We no longer are using Nagid, prince, the leader of Tyre, but now we have shifted two personalities. We're looking at the second personality. We're looking at the king of Tyre. This is not the leader of Tyre. This is not the prince of Tyre any longer. And that becomes very clear as we read forward. Remember, the prince of Tyre was called a man and not a god twice. Significantly, from verses 11 through 19, the king of Tyre is never once called a man. Because the king of Tyre is not a man. He's called the anointed cherub. And notice also that we've gone from a direct warning to a leader. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said, say to the leader of Tyre. So Ezekiel was to say this directly to the leader of Tyre. But now this is not a word to the leader of Tyre. This is a lament about the king of Tyre. This is God singing an elegy. For one great being now lost. You have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. 
The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Trait number one of the enemy. Brilliance. Brilliance. The Lord in this lament says you had the seal of perfection. The word seal means blueprints. You were designed to be perfect. You were put together flawlessly. Obviously this being is more than a mere man and he was created according to exact specifications and when God made this king of Tyre, this anointed one, this cherub, when God made him, he didn't break the mold, he was the mold. Understand that. You had the seal of perfection. This was the perfect design for the cherubim. This one being. Brilliance. This particular brilliant cherubim, note, was in Eden. He was in Eden. Was the leader of Tyre ever in Eden? No. In fact, what sentient being do we know was in the Garden of Eden besides God, Adam, and Eve? Satan was. The serpent. Well, it's a serpent, so maybe not Satan. Revelation 12.9, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He's the only other one who was in the garden. That is of, of conscious intelligence. And now in verse 13, this brilliant one is described brilliantly. God sets out here nine gemstones, all set in gold. What's interesting about those nine gemstones is all nine are among the twelve that are set in the breastplate of the high priest, Exodus 28. Look it up. The nine here are all nine there. Three of the four rows are described right here. Three are missing. The third row of the breastplate of the high priest, which had Jason, Agate, and Amethyst, is not listed here. Why? I don't know. I have no earthly idea. And I tell you that just to say you got to be careful because that sounds intriguing, doesn't it? Oh, nine are here, three are missing. It's got to be something with the three. The Jacinth and the Agate and the Amethyst must be special, must be unique. We can make something New Age-ish about that. You know, people get all wrapped up and excited about intriguing things. Like, sometimes it's just what it is. Why God used these same nine stones and then an additional three? I don't know what the difference is. I know why there were twelve in the breastplate of the high priest. Obviously twelve tribes. One stone for each tribe. Well, maybe the three tribes that correspond with the three missing stones have something... Just... No. (laughs) Point is, Satan was brilliantly beautiful. The uh, cartoon caricature of the devil that so many of us carry around in our heads is not even close. Red suit, pointy goatee, pointy ears, pitchfork, horns, tails with a uh, tail with spade on the end. Right? I know because I dressed like that for Halloween as a child. <laughs> Blame my folks. All right. It was before I got saved, so we're all right. The devil made me do it. No, I mean, think about that in our culture. He's been so caricatured that he's not dangerous anymore. He's <laughs> a little red devil. Ah, oh, you're such a devil. What a devilish thing to do. Or the devil made me do it. And so there's no threat. Kind of cute, actually. 
You know, that whole image comes from Greek mythology, not biblical theology. That's not the picture. This is the picture of the devil. Brilliant. Beautiful. Stunning. Perfect. To look at him would just be, wow, amazing. The picture of the guy in the red suit with the little pointy beard, that's Bacchus, or Pan, of Greek mythology. And it's been translated over. The Bible says he's brilliant. The parallel passage, Isaiah 14, verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. The Hebrew there is Halal ben Shakar, which means light bearer. Halal ben Shakar. It's not Lucifer in the Hebrew. Where's Lucifer come from? Latin. Lucifer is lux fair, which is the Latin for light bearer. The Hebrew is Halal ben Shakar, light bearer. We have this name, Lucifer. Well, you know what? It's not really a name. It's a description. So what's his name? Deceiver? Uh, Adversary? Evil one? We don't have a specific name. You can call him Lucifer if you want to. I actually would encourage you not to call him at all. But Satan was... And Satan just means adversary, right? Set against. He's the one set against God. So you've got Satan the adversary, Halal ben Shakar, or looks fair in the Latin, light bearer. And the point is that he was absolutely stunning and he still knows how to wear it well. So understand that the trait of the enemy is also a tactic of the enemy. Satan knows how to look good. Satan knows how to be attractive. Which is why we're not looking for what's good, but for what's godly. Good things are not always the best route. Good ideas are not always the right thing. Godly things, godly ideas, that's what's right. Satan knows how to use beautiful and brilliant and light and good. And the servants and ministers of the devil also know how to look good. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. An angel of light. How can Satan look like an angel of light? Looks fair. Halal bin Shakar. He is the light bearer. He knows how to dress it up. He knows how to make it look good. Second trait, resonance. Note this, that in verse 13, it refers to his settings and his sockets. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. And what's interesting is settings and sockets, those two words in the Hebrew, are also translated, or better translated, timbrels and pipes. Timbrels and pipes, or tambourines and flutes. This has been talked about a lot. The whole idea of the resonance or the musicality of Satan. Isaiah 14.11 supports it. Your pomp, the music of your harps, has been brought down to Sheol. And so I do want to point out that Satan has a handle on music like no one else. That Satan was created and in his creation, music. He was, he was music. Uh, literally created into him as part of him. That music would just resonate out of him. Therefore, we see that this cherub was a worship leader. And again, this has been talked about a lot. Satan and music and Satan's influence on music and all of that. But here's the thing about music. You know, music is not inherently good or bad. It is what it is. You know, there's 
There's screamo music. If you've ever listened to screamo, it, it's you know when I'm stressed out, that's what I like to listen to. It, it relaxes my heart. You know, it just settles my mind. I'll just sit in my office and crank it up. And there are Christian screamo bands. And I can't stand to listen to them, but you know what? They're proclaiming, they're proclaiming the Lord. And people hear that stuff and they go, oh, well, that's satanic. Yeah, but it's proclaiming Jesus. The music is not in and of itself. So we need to not go so far as to say all music is, has a satanic element to it. No, but He can use it. And that's the issue. And some of our country western music is just as bad as some of the really... He went after country western and riches today! Listen, here's the point. Music resonates in the Spirit. And the moment the Spirit is open, whatever comes with the music is what affects the Spirit. The lyrics. Parents, are you looking at the lyrics of what your kids are listening to? Pay attention. High school, junior high students, are you looking at the lyrics? Are you going, no, I just love the beat, man. Then you're an idiot. (laughs) Because you're opening up your spirit to whatever this person is pouring in. And what the person is pouring in is not only the lyrics, also, have you ever asked yourself, where's this person coming from? What is their life about? What are they into? What are they promoting? What are they preaching? Because they're preaching it directly, not just into your head. Music bypasses the head, gang, and it goes right to the heart. And because of that, it's, it's one of those rare, physically orchestrated things. One of those things that we can do. We can pick up a guitar and start to play, or a piano and start to play, and, and it does something to us. Before the words even begin, already our spirits have a tendency to open up. Oh, this is cool. I want, what's, he gonna, what's she going to talk about? And the Spirit opens and the words go right in. And that's why when I talk to my own kids about music, I say, I want to know what the lyrics are. Because that music you're listening to is powerful stuff. It is a powerful thing that opens you up and then the words go in. And Satan understands that. All music. All music has a source. And we need to be sure we know where that source is coming from. What is behind it? I Again, talk to my own kids. What What's the band into? What do they believe? I don't, you know, show me their lyrics. Show me their lifestyle. Because the music has a source. Well, I only listen to worship music. Isn't it ironic that attitudes about worship and about styles of worship divide churches? Why does that happen? I, 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 for 25 years of ministry, I've watched churches do all kinds of things. That personally, I think are silly. You may think it's a good idea. We have a traditional service that's all hymns, and then we have a pop contemporary service. And I'm like, aren't they both worship? Can't we just do both as a fellowship, as a family, together? I love the hymns. I, I love the most current stuff. That, you know, We had Josiah lead worship this last Wednesday night. And some of the songs that he picked, I'm like, those are great songs. And I go right into the place of worship. As much as I do with the hymn. Why can't we just do it all? I don't understand. Well, but this is what I like. I don't care what you like. That's not why we worship. It's what he likes. That's why we worship. It's about the Lord God, not about the man Rick. The bottom line here is that Luke's fair, Lucifer, Satan, was made 
for worship. I would go so far as to, to maybe guess that not only was he the leader of the band, he was the band. Created for a single purpose, and that is worship of the Most High God. Guess what? That's your single purpose and mine. We are called to worship. We are made to worship. But in Satan's fall, we see what happens when the worship of God starts to be replaced by the worship of anything else, especially the worship of the self. Nothing will mess you up more than self-worship, self-adulation, as happened to heaven's worship leader who was created to worship the Lord and began to really enjoy his own worship. And it's easy to happen. Right, Rachel? Aren't there those times when we're, we're up here and we're singing a song and we're playing and we do something musically and go, oh, that was kind of cool. That scares me when that happens. And that's what happened to Satan. Matthew 4.8 says, The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The worship leader became the one desiring worship. That was Satan's problem. And that's a trait, his resonance. Verse 14, continuing on, verse 14 tells us, You were the anointed cherub who covers. That word covers can also be translated guards. And I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. The anointed cherub who covers or guards. Now I'm not going to be dogmatic about this and I could be wrong. But the implication I believe here is that he is the one who covered, guarded the throne of God. Like the cherubim we see in Ezekiel's original vision at the beginning of the book who are all around the throne. Like John's vision in the Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8, where he sees the cherubim all around the throne, Satan was one of those. In fact, it's possible, it's likely, he was the leader of those. Right at the throne. Point is, he was in the presence of God. He was very close to the Lord. He was a worshiper of the Lord. And that's amazing to me. And the third trait that we see mentioned here is innocence. Brilliance, resonance, innocence. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. He says, you were blameless, verse 15. Blameless in your ways. Innocence. You were blameless on the day you were created. An innocent, angelic being of great beauty, absolute brilliance, and complete and total worship. And people ask the question, why did God create the devil? And the answer is, He didn't create the devil. He created a worshiper. He created a beautiful being. He created a blameless creature who was blameless until unrighteousness was found in him. The Hebrew word unrighteousness, avel, means iniquity or perversion. And I think perversion fits really well. Because Satan was created beautiful and perfect and worshipful and became perverted. Which means angels have a choice, by the way. They are free agents. They can choose whether or not to worship God. Satan chose to rebel against the Lord. Chose to be twisted. 
And now, the same twisted, perverted being, once innocent, now completely wicked, tries to cover over truth. Because he's seen the truth. He's been in the place of the truth. And so now he says, i got to try and cover that. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they would not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. God created Satan innocent. He became what he is now. Verse 16 going on says, By the abundance of your trade, you were, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 16, gang, trait number four, violence. Violence as a trait of the enemy. And note this, the Lord, not Rick, the Lord connects violence with trade. The Hebrew word for trade, rakula. Rakula means merchandise. Merchandise. By the abundance of your merchandise, you are internally filled with violence. So here's a shocker for you. God is not a capitalist. This is not a godly system. It's a good system. But it's not God's system. And I guarantee you, in the millennial kingdom, the socioeconomic system will not be capitalism. Look at Israel. A rural people who were farmers and ranchers who solely depended on God for everything. If the crops came up, it was because of the blessing of the Lord. If the animals were reared and healthy, it was because of the blessing of the Lord. If the rains came, it's because the Lord brought the rains. They were wholly dependent on God. Capitalism is not dependent on God. Capitalism is dependent on greed. Now, I am a beneficiary of capitalism. You know? I, I, you, oh, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> what is the connection between greed and violence? Let me just read this to you real quickly. This is James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the Lord is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's the deal. Merchandise leads to violence. Why? Because merchandise is greed-driven. And greed knows no bounds. And ultimately, greed takes us to the place of saying, well, well, it takes us to the place of Judas. Who we talked about last November, the motivation, Mark 14, look it up and read it. The motivation behind Judas' betrayal of Jesus was greed. You know what the moment was when Judas decided, when he finally turned and he went to the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus? It was on the night when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with that expensive alabaster vial, broke the vial, poured out the perfume, and (laughs) Judas was incensed. (laughs) Good one, huh, Deb? 
And he left, and the Bible tells us he went from there to go betray Jesus. This is before that Thursday night, before the Last Supper. He had already had conversation. Why? Because he was so fed up that this expensive perfume could have been sold, the money put in the money bag, which he kept charge of, so he could use it. And John tells us he had been stealing out of the money bag through the whole ministry. Jesus knew that. Greed, violence. The distance between the two is not so far as we might think. And Satan, by character, is violent. Ezekiel 28, look at verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Note that. Why did God cast Satan out of heaven in the first place? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he still has access. Okay, Satan can still access heaven. He still has come before, has to come before God. How do you know that? Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. Tells us Satan is before the Lord. Comes up before God. So he still has access. It's not until midway through the tribulation that Satan gets actually kicked out of heaven and his visa revoked so that he can't be in there at all. And then he is only on earth and then he goes nuts. Right now he still has access to heaven. But he was kicked out. Though he has access, he was thrown out. And the reason that he was thrown out to earth, the reason why his presence on earth is so strongly felt, listen, his own pride is behind the arrogance that he encourages among his human agents, such as the prince of Tyre. But he was cast to earth that man might see his corruption and be appalled. What are you saying, Rick? He was cast out that we might see his corruption and be appalled by it. But man is not appalled. Man is drawn. Man is lured. Man is intrigued. Man is interested. One day everybody will be appalled by Satan. But today is not that day. Today, the vast numbers of people in the world are not appalled by Satan at all. Curious, interested, drawn to. Only the, listen, only those who live by the Spirit of Christ are appalled by Satan. Do you find yourself appalled at the wickedness in the world? Appalled by the evil in the world? Appalled by the funny TV shows that show us things that we shouldn't be watching. Are we disgusted by the work of the devil in this world or do we think it's kind of cute? There's an awful lot of cuteness on TV, on Netflix and other places. And an awful lot of Christians... Interesting. One of my favorite movies is A Christmas Story. And because of the two little kids are so much like my brother and I, you know, growing up. And when it came out in 1983, my brother took me to, for Christmas. We went and saw that together. So I, I, I've got kind of history with it. But Cheryl and I were uh, stopped off at the Waffle House um, in Leavenworth on the way home from dropping Cheryl off yesterday. And we were sitting there having dinner. And there was a group of people right behind us, obviously a group of Christians. And we were just listening in. Didn't tell them I was a pastor. I just loved it. I love to listen to Christians who don't know. And they're, they're talking. And 
they were talking about different movies, and, and they said, did, did, did anyone did you ever see that movie, A Christmas Story? I hear Christians telling me what a wonderful movie it is, and I'm like going, yeah, it's a great movie. And she goes, I, I was appalled. And I went, well, now I'm sure not going to tell her I'm a pastor. So I, I thought it was a great movie. And they start talking about all the things in the movie that appalled them. And I went, oh, man. I just kind of overlooked those things because I like the movie so much. And so I sat there eating my little Belgian waffle and quite convicted. And you're thinking, Rick, that's a Christmas story. Come on. We watch much worse than that. I know. The future of this once perfect worshipful being is certain. And it's not a trait. And it's not a tactic. It's number nine if you want to note this. We've given several traits and several uh, tactics. His comeuppance. Comeuppance. Verse 18, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them also was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Please understand, Satan does not have charge of hell. Satan is not the ruler of hell. Satan will be punished in hell like everybody else who ends up in hell. He's not the boss. He doesn't make stopovers on planet earth but then head back to his his palace in hell. That That is so bizarre how we've come up with that. Satan will be in that place of punishment and torment. That is his end. That is where he is headed along with every other person who rejects or refuses worship of the one true God and His Son, who is Jesus Christ. Now, for all of Satan's tactics and traits, and I know I've gone a little bit long, hang with me a couple minutes more here. I think the most important thing that we can learn and understand out of Ezekiel 28, the most important thing is the most obvious thing. But perhaps you've missed it. Two personalities described here. A prince and a king. A man at the top and a spiritual being behind him. The prince of Tyre is a human agent. He is affected by all the tactics of influence, affluence, intelligence, arrogance. All the tactics of the enemy are brought to bear on this influential man. But behind him is the king of Tyre. Behind him is the devil himself. The brilliant, resonant, innocent, once, now violent adversary of all things godly. The relationship is the point. The relationship of the king and the leader. It is a relationship, gang, that Satan has been refining for centuries. He has been working on this. Hiding behind and using people of renown. It is a relationship he's been refining because it is about to play out again on a far grander scale than it has ever been seen before between the devil, the king, and the Antichrist, the human agent. And what we see between the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre is very simply what we will see between Satan and Antichrist. Well, we won't see it. 
but the world will see it in days that are not far off. Speaking of Antichrist, Daniel wrote in Daniel 11.36, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Daniel 11.45, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. That's the human driven by the satanic. As the prince of Tyre has the king of Tyre driving him, so Antichrist has Satan driving him, but Antichrist is going to come to his end. When Satan has had enough, when Satan has used Antichrist fully and is finally done with him, guess what happens? Satan pulls back and Antichrist is wiped out. Because that's what he does. Satan uses until the use is no longer necessary. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 tells us Antichrist, the man of lawlessness the son of destruction, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, But then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Revelation 13.6, referring to Antichrist again, says he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. The king behind the leader. Satan behind the man. And so the question I want to leave you with today is what king is behind your life? You see, the tactics and traits of the enemy have not changed. Isaiah 14, verse 14, he said, I will make myself like the Most High. And so he fell. But for all his pipes and timbrels, he's never changed his tune. Eve, you can be like God. Prince Ethbel, you can be like God. Antichrist, you can be like God. How many of you have have prayed this prayer. Lord, make me like you. Be honest. How many of you have asked the Lord to make you like Him? I have. I've prayed that prayer. I want to be like Jesus. It's hard to be like Jesus, but I want to be like Him. If we pray that prayer so other people will be impressed with our spirituality, it is a demonically inspired prayer. It's a prayer from the pit. Lord, make me more like you so others can see how I've grown. So others can see my greatness and glory as a follower of of Jesus. Now, if you're praying, Lord, make me like you, and by that you mean emptied of self, taking on the form of a bondservant, humble, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross... Now that's a prayer Jesus can answer. That's the prayer He invites us to pray. He said, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow Me. Know thy enemy and know thyself. Find not in fear for a hundred battles. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are aware of the traits, the tactics of the enemy in this world, that we would not be deceived. We would not be, as Paul wrote, ignorant of his schemes. 
I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will recognize, bow down before, and worship only one King, and that is You. That You would be King over our lives. And Jesus, I pray over every aspect of our lives, including the things that we take pleasure in, may they only be that which honors You and brings glory to You. If you have not made Jesus the King of your life, if He is not the authority behind you, I invite you to do that this morning. And I invite you to pray after me in your heart to the Lord. Lord Jesus, come and take authority over me. I pray that You will save me from myself, save me from my sin. Forgive me. I pray that You will wash me by the blood that You poured out on the cross when You died in my place. I pray that I might be raised up to new life even as You were raised, Lord, from the dead. And I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I bow before You as Lord today and I pray, Jesus, be my King. In Jesus' name, Amen.